Welcome to the Adorned Women Podcast. Our goal is to inspire you with news stories each week featuring women of faith from all over the world, both past and present, and we want to introduce you to them. Through weekly discussions with each sister in Christ, we hope to give you a glimpse into who they are and how their lives have been transformed by the gospel. We are all in this journey together, so let's be inspired together. Hello, Adorn Women. We are so excited to introduce you to Heather Enright today. Heather has called the DFW Texas area home for more than 26 years after growing up as an army brat and preacher's kid. She's married to her college sweetheart, Chris. They're parents to three, Colin, Cooper, and Karis, and they're gaining a daughter after Colin's August 2022 wedding. Heather is a co-founder and executive director of the nonprofit organization, The Adoptee Collective, which exists to be a healing adoptee community who revolutionize the systems that impact them. Heather has authored and published multiple books, finding joy in using her gifts, time, and energy towards the purposes that God has given her. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Heather today. Hello, Adorn Women. I'm your host, Michaela, and I'm here with my co-host and sister-in-law, Alicia. Hello. And we're here with Heather Enright. Heather and my mother actually went to college together. They were sorority sisters, and that is how I know Heather. And I've just had a great time getting to know her recently, and we really want to share her story with you. So, Heather, if you just want to introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. I'm Heather Enright. And as Michaela said, we're connected through her mom, Donna. And Donna and I were sorority sisters. We were student secretaries together. And we were social work majors together. So her mother endured me endlessly in our Baylor years. We were in the same spaces all the time. And Donna was also in my wedding as a bridesmaid. So it's been a joy keeping up with her through the years and seeing Michaela through her life grow up. And so I'm so excited to be here with you guys today. I'm married to my college sweetheart, as is Donna. So we have that mutual connection as well. And I have three kids who are turning 23 tomorrow. 20 and 17. I love it. Sikkim bears. <laughs> That's right. Sikkim bears. Our oldest is a Baylor bear. The next two are saying no. And our middle actually goes to Colorado State. And our youngest is waiting to hear from college admissions. But Baylor is not in her top three. So it's all right. I don't know if you guys make these kind of jokes, but my brother, he's at Baylor. And so, of course, he's the favorite child now. Um <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we do say that. Or my kids do say that a little bit. And our son actually is marrying his high school and college sweetheart as well. So the other two, everybody forges their own path and we cheer them on in that. But for sure, Colin and Elizabeth have sort of shadowed and paralleled my earlier years. Yep, that's awesome. And are they getting married this year? Yes, August 14th. We are less than seven months, so starting to hit all of the, you know, decision-making and all the details now we're getting to. Yes, my mom and I just went through all that together this past year, so it's a, it's a fun season for sure. It is. 
surreal as a mom that the things that we prayed for our children from in utero were in that really harvest season where we're seeing prayers come to fruition. And sometimes, honestly, when something happens, I think, oh, yeah, I did pray about that, you know, a while back, back when they were little. So it is a really sweet season. Mm, Absolutely. If we can talk about adoption, I would love to, because I know you worked in that for a long time and we won't get to talk about it as much as I personally would love during this interview today, but adoption is something that God has put on my heart from a young age. And I just love what you've done for many years as a social worker and now with the Adoptee Collective. So, I mean, do you mind talking a little bit about your experience with that before we get into you know the real stuff? But <laughs> I just want to hear a little bit about your experiences. Yeah, I'm always happy to talk about adoption. It's sort of been part of my life. Well, it's absolutely been part of my life for a very long time. So my dad was adopted in a kinship adoption. And when I was at Baylor and we got into our senior year practicums, the adoption agency was on the list of potentials. And that sounded like a great thing to do. So I did that. And that was that. So since 1990. Two, actually, I've been involved in adoption. I've been an adoption social worker since I got my master's degree. So that has been 20, almost 28 years. And I've worked with adoptive parents primarily. But I would say through my years working in adoption, I've come to see some things and actually have my mind changed about some things about how adoption has historically worked and had some convictions about where I felt adoption directions should go in the future. I've also seen a lot of shifts globally. I've worked at an international adoption since 2002, doing home studies and post-placement visits with adoptive families. So during COVID, nothing like a global pandemic for God to just throw open a new door such a great time to decide that you're going to found a nonprofit. So that is exactly what happened. So unexpected. And so I co-founded the Adoptee Collective in April of this year. Well, April now of last year, 21. And my co-founder lives in Kenya. And the Adoptee Collective, our vision is to be a healing adoptee community who revolutionizes systems that impact them. So we are really committed to creating trauma-informed resources and services that are adoptee-centered in their approach. Historically, adoption is really focused on the parents rather than the adoptee, who, of course, most impact is on the adoptee. And we also believe in prioritizing cultural competence. We really can't support an adoptee unless we're really culturally competent and contextualizing everything to their native language, their native culture, by people from their own country. Mm. Yeah, I love your work with that. My husband and I, we both share this passion for adoption. And so at some point, I'm definitely going to be looking into your resources and looking for that training and direction. But We'll probably come back to that a little bit at the end of the interview, just to talk about how God is using you presently. But before we get into those main questions, I just want to say, Heather, after listening to some of the other podcasts you've done and hearing you speak, I am just so impressed with the way that you move forward. And that might be an odd thing to say, but as I've learned more about you, just what you've been through and how your perspective has shifted and 
how you've grown and, and changed and developed what you do. It's become so obvious to me that you take everything that comes at you and you channel it forward. Just giving your experiences to God and letting him direct your steps. So one of the areas where this is really apparent, and I know this is probably a sensitive topic and hard to talk about sometimes, but how you've dealt with grief in your life. And I would really encourage our listeners to check out your book. It's called Sewing in Tears, The Father's Heart to the Grieving. But I know you actually use the phrase grieving forward in that book. And I think that's such an important concept. Could you share some of your experience that led to the writing of that book and how you view the grieving forward process? Yeah, absolutely. I find it so interesting that that's your perception or sense of me because there's been so many seasons in my life where I've felt very paralyzed by grief. So, you know, when you're in the moment and you feel paralyzed and you feel no traction, you can forget that in the big scope of things and God's bigger purpose that you're still perhaps moving forward, that he's still pressing you forward. So, it's just interesting to me because my sense of it is like these little spots of being paralyzed by grief. And then there's the in-between. But grief for me really entered unexpectedly when I was 17. My dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer. We knew he had cancer. We did not know it was terminal. We expected it to be removed by surgery. And so three days before Christmas, my senior year in high school, the diagnosis changed and he was given three to six months. So he lived 18 months and died the end of my freshman year at Baylor. And absolutely my college years were marked profoundly by grief. There is nothing like your world falling out from under you. I was very alone in my grieving, did not have a lot of family connection and some family really important family connections had disappeared. Peers, nobody knows how to respond to grief, no matter your age. But when you're 19 and your peers are worried about, you know, what they're wearing to the next dance and you are in this profound grief and depression, it's a lonely place to be. So I would say definitely in those years, I envisioned someday because I love to write, that maybe I could put something together about this experience. But yet I always had this sense of there needs to be traction. I believe there's merit in telling our stories and it's helpful to know that you're not alone. But it was important to me if I was ever going to really write about grief in a book form that it included some footholds forward because I felt so paralyzed. I didn't want my story to bog down or paralyze the reader. And then the second episode of profound depression was postpartum. And that paralyzed me for a few months where I, I literally was hardly functioning. So I had a two-year-old and a newborn and not extended family support. So that was hard. I had a lot of friends that just carried me through, literally carrying me through in prayer and some days actually carrying me through by helping care for my children. And then in 2016, I slipped into a depression that I didn't recognize for a while. And it was another season of sort of grieving in general, more of a, a change in identity, a change in life season, 
hard things happening around me. And it was the loss of a family friend to cancer who she was in her 20s. That really was sort of the final, I think the final catalyst where the Lord opened the door to lead me to the book of Ruth and realize that it was a story imaging how he moves to us and our seasons of grieving. And as I'm writing it, probably I'd say the third weekend of my research, I just felt very humbled by this sense that here we are 30 plus years later and God has connected these dots to give me this place at a table to write a book about grief. That is just an incredible story and just the fact that you went through all of that and are at this place where you were able to write a book and apply that to the book of Ruth. I think that that is really cool that you you just applied that to scripture specifically and that scripture was able to help you in that time. Could you maybe go into depth just a little bit? Obviously it's in your book, but like why you chose Ruth specifically and how that helped you. Absolutely. So I wrote a book on Esther that took me about 10 years to finally like visiting it, tucking it away, revisiting it, tucking it away. So four iterations before it became the book. And after Esther, Ruth was just on my mind. And I sort of boldly told my husband, I'm going to write another book on Ruth. And this was the year after Esther the Esther book, Chase the Kingdom. And he's, we had a good giggle about like, now I'm just going to suddenly bust out all these books. And I, I thought I can get it done this year. And he, um, okay, hot shot. Let's just see how that goes. So I don't know what it was that intrigued me about Ruth specifically a little bit because Esther is, of course, the festival of Purim, the Jewish holiday of Purim is connected to the story of Esther. And Ruth is also another book that is read at the Festival of Harvest in the Jewish tradition. And so they have some connection scripturally in the Jewish history. And I thought going into Ruth that it was going to be more a story of rejection and being on the outside during my depression from 2016 to 2018. Loneliness was a real marker of that depression, and community was something that I had pretty much unable, paralyzed, handicapped to be part of community in any capacity. So I thought that's what Ruth was going to be about. So I dug in and started writing, and actually, you know, surprisingly, but by God's hand, oh, this is this is the book on grief. I didn't see that one coming, and it was March of 2020. And can we all just say collective womp womp to that timing? And it's interesting now in hindsight that in the, the very beginning of what we're all still enduring, that God gave me this place to write a book on grief, because I think the globe is collectively grieving a lot of things. And so I find it interesting timing. You also talk about in that book, this idea of a faith wrestle, and I've heard you say that your faith walk is actually a faith wrestle, which I love. Could you go into that idea a little bit, where that come from, and what that actually looks like in your life? Yeah, absolutely. So Hebrews 12, 2, you know, it talks about, and in other places, you know, Paul talks about running the race of faith and setting your eyes We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and so press on. And I think 
in hindsight, I've spent most of my life, you know, I was born into a Christian family and went on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights and decided that I wanted to follow Jesus really early. So I never have had a season of rebellion in my life, but always felt like I wasn't measuring up to that idea of racing a faith race or a faith walk. Like I just never could see myself. I attempted to be a middle distance runner in middle school, attempted being the keyword running and me are not friends. Only marathons I do are Netflix. So <laughs> it just never felt like I measured up and in Ruth and Esther and spending time doing a lot of chasing down uh, leads on how the scripture connects to each other, came to spend some time with Jacob wrestling with God in that passage and realized that is really actually a far better descriptor and that's okay. And I think that was really that season of depression in 2016 to 2018 was was God demolishing a lot of idols in my life. It is quite biblical that the kings in Israel and the people of Israel over and over again tend to follow idols. And then they have this season of demolishing these idols. And that's painful when you're in a personal season like that. And God is saying, you worship yourself. You are on the throne and you are bowing to yourself instead of me or relationships, or status, or places of ministry. And so when he's demolishing those idols, it is a painful process, and it is a wrestling. And I think in all of that, God was awakening me to grace and realizing I had built a lifelong faith in my late 40s on self-righteousness instead of grace. So wrestling through that really became my go-to and just owning that and saying, yeah, I wouldn't call my life a faith walk. I would call it a faith wrestle. And I found it really interesting in my research in Esther and Ruth that Israel, the root word of Israel means those who contend with God. So when you read, I was in Psalms 135 today, when you read, you know, that he is the God of Israel David is saying he is the God of those who wrestle with him. Mm. How greater is grace than realizing that God sees our wrestling and says, it's okay. Yeah. I think that oftentimes we view wrestling or like any doubt or anything like that as a negative thing, but God can use that. He, he wants us to wrestle and, and come face to face with these hard things. And we have to go through some of those things to come to the conclusion that he is God and is with us in those, <laughs> in those really hard moments of doubt and, and grief and wrestling. So I love that you recognize that. Yeah, I think we can get really hung up, whether you're new to the faith or you grew up in a faith tradition, we get really hung up on all these stories of in the scripture, particularly the Old Testament, you know, David and he beat Goliath. And, you know, we build up these people in scripture, Moses and Abraham, and we see only these great moments where they were super obedient. And we build them up as these superheroes of faith. And we forget that the bulk of their lives were really spent in the wrestling. Mm. Let's look at Moses, for example. You know, he killed an Israelite. He commits murder. He runs off in the desert. Scripture says he was in the desert for 40 years, right? And he meets his wife, and then God calls him through the burning bush. And so we forget that 
that's 40 years. That's a, that's a really long time. So we forget because scripture doesn't tell us, right? Those big periods of time, we just see 40 years and we don't stop to think, what does that contain day after day after day? And then God calls them and he delivers his people. And we think we in the church tend to think only of that instead of the fact that that was a moment. And then they cross the Red Sea and then they get into the desert again for another 40 years. I mean, that's 80 years of Moses's life, wandering, waiting, wrestling. And we forget that, that the bulk of our lives, I'm 50 now, so I can say this with more certainty than ever before. The bulk of our lives are spent in the tedious, mundane days, wrestling with God, waiting for the next mountaintop and being called to obey in the mundane and the unseen and the tedious. And if we look carefully at scripture, that is what we will see in between the lines of everybody whose story God included in scripture. Wow. Do you have advice for anyone who is going through one of those periods of grief and wrestle and it feels like it's impossible to be faithful in the mundane? Well, we live in a world that is, look at me, look at me, right? We live in sort of this sensationalized world where we hold ourselves to a standard that is not accurate, is not really reality, and is really against everything that God calls us to. He calls us to be unknown and to not despise the day of small things. So I think one of the first pieces of advice I would give is, who are you looking at? My pastor says, we become what we behold. And we live in a world where we are beholding social media and we are beholding these sensationalized versions. So I think the first thing we have to do is be aware of what are we beholding because it is forming us, whether we know it or not. And then second of all, intentionally sitting at the feet of Jesus in a regular discipline and rhythm to just listen to what he has to say, like Mary did in in Luke 10. and to be taught by him and to ask him to help us look at the right things and to fix our eyes on him and to give us what we need for each day and break it down that way. I think the third thing I would say is that in the mundane and in the waiting, that is not the sum of what's to come. And it's easy to forget that. When we're waiting, we think this is all it is and this is too hard. And we forget that it is a season where God is, we are experiencing labor pains, but God is at work at birthing something new. That is so wise and it's clear. You've got plenty of experience of processing through this and just understanding this in your own life. So thank you for sharing all of that. I'd like to transition to, we, we've talked about this relationship with God, now transitioning to relationship with others because there's so much importance in simple connection, both with God and with others. And I'm guessing that a lot of experiences in your life have played into your understanding of this, both personal and observed. But what do you think is most important for establishing connection with the people around you? And then what is most important for sustaining those connections? Yeah, I would love to say I have so much to tell you because I've done this so well. But I have not, and I would 
again, talking about the theme of wrestling community, I, I'm really an introvert at heart and by nature. And that is not something I've truly embraced until more recently. As I've learned about grace, I'm like, it's okay to say this is who I am. But I've spent most of my life trying to sort of, I've realized people please and be this person that I thought was the way we're supposed to be. At the same time, having endured some really deep wounds of rejection, familially, and then also just on a community level. Again, as I said, college years, when you are Eeyore and you are grieving and you're depressed and you are truly no fun, community is super hard. Interestingly, that is when God brought my husband into my life and bless him. I haven't run him off yet. He fell in love with me when I was a mess. So I guess he's here to stay. So most of my life, I would say that I have felt like I needed to to fit in this little box to do that well. I need to be engaging and put on the happy face because, you know, a, a person of faith is supposed to be this, this, and this, right? So I would say that community has been really hard and I was an army brat. So add that into the equation that every two to four years growing up, I was moving and having to make all new friends and not ever really having long lasting friendships and points of connection. So it's been a steep learning curve, I'll say. And I think the turning point again is 2016 to 2018 is this great work that God was doing in a really wretched time that community was so hard for me. And that was one of the big markers that I am not right. I am not well is community became very, very difficult. I talked myself into going to my daughter's basketball games because there were people there who I felt rejection from. I talked myself into going to church. And ultimately, I would say toward the tail end where I finally talked to a doctor and started getting help for my depression, I would wear sunglasses into church in case I burst out in tears and needed to turn and leave so that nobody would see me. And that's pretty much what happened. And in that season, there were changes in our life group. In other words, I just was not doing community. It was frightening to me. And I felt it was too vulnerable. I couldn't be that vulnerable. I was too fragile for that. So God was working in that season to really basically drive home the point in the wrestling that community is a biblical call. That doesn't mean that it's always going to come naturally. And it for sure isn't going to come easily. Because when we embrace our need for grace, how we desperately every moment continually need God's grace, then we can be awed by God's grace. And that calls us to extend it to other people. So I would say, you know, wrestling through those things and getting to a place where you can be in awe of God's grace really equips you to extend it to others well and to do community and work at community out of obedience. And in doing that, we are not despising the bride because of our love for the bridegroom. We're embracing this is hard, but we're called to live in community and also just asking him to equip us to do that. Yeah. Just as you talk about that season of life when you were in college and community was hard for you then, as well as when you were a mother and an adult, what would you tell people who maybe are on the other side of that, where they have a friend who is grieving a loss or maybe struggling with depression or anxiety and they just 
don't relate to them, don't understand what they're going through, but want to be there for them? Do you have advice for those people? Yeah, absolutely. And that would be stay near and then stay near and then stay near and probably keep your mouth shut. (laughs) I don't mean that comes off really super rude, but when you read in Job, his friends were at their very best when they just sat there in the sackcloth and ashes where they really started to sort of not offer good support is when they started talking. And really when you're speaking from my own experience, when you are in those really dark places, To just have somebody sitting next to you is really all that is needed. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as instead of trying to come up with the right words, just saying, I don't have the right words, but I'll stay in the mud and the muck with you. That really is, I think, the simple truth of it. We overcomplicate it and we think we have to do all these other things and have the perfect word. And it's so awkward when somebody's going through something really, really hard. And having been that person, I still feel that way toward other people. And I think there's two things that the church can do better. And that is the first one is mourn with those who mourn and grieve together and move to them. Because when people are in that place of hurting, we don't ask a soldier on the battlefield who's been wounded to move themselves to the field hospital, right? Triage comes to them. So the church needs to to be very careful about not expecting the wounded to necessarily always do the hard work of reaching out and being vulnerable, but to have eyes to see those that are going down and to just dare to walk with them. And what that looks like now for me and in our life group that we're in, just this morning, there was a text thread about there's things going on. There's a mom whose teenage son was just diagnosed with juvenile diabetes. There's a mom dealing with post-COVID pneumonia, you know, there's things going on. So we're texting each other, how are you doing? Can I bring you a meal that may not be helpful because you're trying to learn how to count carbs for JD? So what can we do to help? It's meeting the pragmatic needs, but it's also daring to enter the hard place. And we need to call each other and hold each other accountable to that. And then the second thing with community that I've had to to sort of learn on my own is that we do community. Jesus had 12 followers, right? He had this most intimate circle that was his safest, closest companions. When God calls us to community, that doesn't mean we have to apply that same level of intimacy and vulnerability with everybody. So in following how Jesus lived his life on earth, he had his his safe circle. It was okay that he had an intimate group that was safe. And then there was this implication of boundaries that he didn't have to have that with everybody. And the idea of boundaries and being in community is not something that the church talks about, but it's clear in scripture and Paul addresses it in Timothy and in other places that being in community and being part of a church community means it's okay to have a a safe, intimate group that we invest the most in that are spurring each other on. And then we are called to serve and minister those that are outside of that closest circle. You've mentioned vulnerability a couple of times, and you also mentioned boundaries. Like you said, Jesus 
modeled that vulnerability with his disciples. And I actually looked up what does what vulnerable actually mean? And the technical definition is just leaving yourself open to attack or harm, putting yourself in a potentially harmful situation, not <laughs> intending to be harmed, but just leaving yourself open to that. And I'm curious to know, what do you think the role of vulnerability is in healthy, godly relationships? I think vulnerability is asking the Lord to show you where are healthy wells to draw from. We see this in scripture in the Old Testament where there were broken wells. And listen, if a well is broken and there's no living water there to fill you back up, maybe quit drawing from that well. That's probably not going to be the place that is going to spur you to follow Jesus more closely. So I think being vulnerable is asking God to give you the wisdom. Where are the broken wells where maybe I'm called to help pour into them, but not expect them to pour into me? And where are the wells that are healthy wells filling themselves continually with living water that are going to do that in my life? And sometimes a boundary looks like, well, I think a lot of times in my life, a boundary is look like clearing up my expectation and just being able to say like, that is a person because of a situation or wisdom from the Lord or whatever, uh, Lord, there was this hurtful situation here. Is this a place where I need to keep pushing and doing the work to build community? Is this a broken well? Or is this a well that I need to keep drawing from even when it's hard? You know, or does this go in that latter category? This is a broken well that it's okay to not expect to be able to draw from it, but I am called to pour into it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I've been reading through Jeremiah recently, and so that was towards the beginning of Jeremiah where he talks about how the Israelites exchanged their well that w- that was with living filled with living water for broken wells. But I haven't ever really thought of it that way, applied to community, and just I often think of broken wells, they can be that those idols in our lives, but they can also be sources, human sources that aren't where we're supposed to be getting our life source from. Yeah, absolutely. I think broken wells are anything that we put before God. And, and that could be, you know, anything from, as I've already mentioned, social media or habits or spending habits or addiction, you know, things that become addictions. Those are all wells. Those are all idols and also relationships. Yeah. I think that's a fantastic analogy too, because you just get this perfect image of the two-way relationship of you can either have it where it's mutual and you're each pouring into each other because you've been poured into by God, or you can be pouring into someone, but not having them pour into you. And I think that's a really important concept to grasp because it doesn't mean that you cut them off and it doesn't mean that you're completely breaking away from them. And in some situations that, that very well might be the safe, the safe option that God is leading you to, but not every situation where someone can't pour into you mandates that you can't pour into them. And I think that's a really great way to, to visualize that and to, to see that. 
Yeah, I think we have to be, I mean, again, this is just sitting at the feet of Jesus to wrestle through these things and these questions and specific relationships, because there is a difference. And Paul is very clear about, you know, if somebody is stirring division and quarreling with you, you warn them once, and then you warn them twice, and then you have nothing to do with them. And Paul is addressing you know, the church here. So that is a marker. That is a red flag is their relationship where it's just quarrelsome and it's constantly contentious and not honoring to God. And that's where you have to say, okay, Lord, is this a situation where their community on the outside of my intimate, vulnerable building up place where I need to live at peace with them. That's our biblical standard, Romans 12, 18. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. So help me know, am I just to live at peace with them? Or is this a place you're calling me to pour into knowing that I will not get that in return? Now, I love hearing people who have spent a lot of time processing their experiences. I love hearing them talk about the wisdom that they've gleaned from that process and just the way that God has spoken into them and taught them throughout their life. But I also love asking about the current day situations, the current day experiences, because those we just don't understand, really, if we're honest. We don't understand where it's going when it's current day. So I really want to hear about some of your experiences. You talked about starting the Adoptee Collective and how that is something God led you into a little bit different than what you were doing before. But can you share about? how you ended up doing that a little bit more detail into how you ended up doing that and what that experience has been like, how you see God using you in that. Yeah, absolutely. So I love writing. I'm a writer for Fort Worth Moms. I've had a love of writing. I was the geeky UIL ready writer in high school. And so it was probably June of 2020 when my friend Kara, who grew up in our church, she actually babysat my children when our daughter was a baby, who is, she's now 17. So that's how I know Kara. And we have shared a love of writing and she's an adult adoptee. So we've had a lot of conversations about adoption and what it might look like and kind of dreaming what it should look like, what it could look like. And so she had asked me in June of 2020, as her work with the NGO in Kenya had really slowed because of COVID, if I would be a writing coach for her and a team working on a collective memoir of telling their own narratives of being adopted. So we started that. And then that quickly sort of did this little side path where she said, you know, I'm working on developing resources for her NGO works with vulnerable kids in Kenya. And there's nothing out there that's a life book for adoptees. You know, there's this idea of life books that adoptive parents put together a book for adoptees telling them their own, you know, sort of early story. But ownership of your own narrative is a really hard thing for adoptees. Their life story has never been theirs. Other decision makers really made a profound decision early on to impact their path. And so having ownership of their own story is something that is the gap we were trying to fill. So we began developing what has now become my storybook. And we have it in a kid's edition, an adult edition. It's available on Amazon but we've received a grant to help distribute it here in North Texas as well. 
through local organizations. But my storybook, we've had a really hard time describing it because it's sort of a new genre, but it is a therapeutic workbook. It is a guided journaling book. There are trauma-informed interactive tools in it. So it is designed to help the adoptee tell their own story in their own words for their own sake, allowing them to really feel some ownership, putting it all in one book where there's continuity. An adoptee or a foster child moving between placements has one place that these memories and these reflections are gathered that goes with them from place to place and then includes the important aspect, again, going back to the idea of telling your story as merit, but you need traction to cope with it, to deal with it. So this section in there with trauma-informed tools. So as we were developing that book in the fall of 2020, oh, hey, maybe we should do a website. And then that quickly became, maybe we should be a nonprofit. So boom, there you have it. In just a short amount of time, we signed our paperwork to become a nonprofit in April of 2021. So we aren't even at a year yet, but I see God divinely connecting these dots and that Karen and I have a long history. We work well together quite divinely. Our minds just, we have a mind meld that just works. We developed my storybook and founded a nonprofit and continue to work via Marco Polo and Zoom and WhatsApp. Those are our Google Docs. Those are our go-to methods because she's in Kenya and I'm in Texas. And I think the way the partnership works as an adult adoptee, she leads the organization. We want it to be adoptee led because there aren't, it is growing, but traditionally there have not been resources geared at the adoptee for the adoptee as the primary client which may sound a little crazy when you think about the history of the world and adoption, that still the primary client is seen as the adoptive parent and the foster parent, but yet it's the adoptee's life. So being adoptee-led, we have that, and Kara being able to speak from her own experience as an American adoptee, she's also lived internationally and has lived in Kenya for about five years working with NGOs there. So she has her finger in the pulse of what's happening globally and a global movement to move children from institutionalized care and residential care centers back into family-based settings. While I'm here in America as an adoption social worker, having been the practitioner for all these years, working with adoptive parents and sort of completing that full circle of what the adoption constellation looks like. So we were fast and furious our first six months. We got a grant through HEB Grocery here in Texas, $10,000. And I believe that news came in October. So we are using that this year to distribute my storybook through North Texas organizations to begin to partner with and really work with local organizations here in North Texas, working with foster kids and adoptees, and digging in to do some work on cultural competence, researching the history of adoption, which surprisingly, again, there's not a lot out there. And I would say because there's a lot to blame in, it's not a pretty history. And then also we are doing some work to survey, do a wide scope survey of adoptees 
so that their voice can inform our next steps, which will be mentoring and training services. Wow, that is just incredible. It seems like God has taken your gifts that you've had and your passions throughout your life and has brought them all together now as you begin this journey with the Adoptee Collective. So thank you so much for not only sharing that, but just your story with us today, Heather, your vulnerability and just your wisdom has encouraged me. And I know that it will encourage others as well. And as we close, is there anything that our community can be praying for you specifically about? My word for 2022 is expectancy, which sort of took me by surprise because I don't think of that word often. But I really believe that God is asking me to learn how to wait with expectation, to build my belief where I have a confidence in that He is going to be who He's always been, who He promises to be, and to wait with expectation of what He's going to do for me professionally through the Adoptee Collective and for my children as they are each sort of at a crossroads in life, for my marriage, for my community, for all the things in my life to wait in expectation for Him because I have come to see that unbelief is really the root of a lot of worry. So when I, here's a tip for you, here's a red flag to pay attention to. When you are praying pleadingly, and repeatedly, like you're trying to convince God to do something for you, you are really expressing an unbelief, a tiny belief that he is able to do what you're asking of him. And I'm finding that the remedy to that is to build bigger belief. And God is calling me to do that with this word of expectancy to learn how to put my hope in him in a bigger way, you know, more robustly. So Psalms 5.3 is my verse for the year. So if anybody out there, if the Spirit prompts you, just pray that verse with me in agreement with me. Thank you so much. And we will definitely be praying with you and for you. Where can people find you? Maybe online or social media? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on the Twitters, but I don't know. People are not playing nice there so much sometimes. So it is at Enright, E-N-R-I-G-H-T, Heather, one. And then I'm on Instagram, and that is that is a safer playground for me. People are much nicer there. So that is at Heather underscore Enright, E-N-R-I-G-H-T. So those are the two main places to find me. Uh, the Adoptee Collective is on Instagram as well if you want to follow what we're doing. And our website is theadopteecollective.com. I've so much enjoyed our conversation and I think we say this every time, but I really wish it could be longer. <laughs> but I am so glad that we met you and got the chance to connect with you. And we will definitely, I mean, we are connected in Christ forever. So that is that is our assurance as sisters in Christ. So thank you again. Yeah, y'all are stuck with me forever. And any listener, I want everybody to feel like they can reach out to me. I find purpose from the pain I've endured, and this is God's redemption, by encouraging each other and sharing what we've learned to pass on to those behind us, using my wounds to speak to those bleeding out. So I really want every listener who feels inclined to feel free to reach out to me at any point and let me be part of your journey as well. Thanks, Heather. You're awesome. Thank you for listening to the Adorned Women podcast. 
If you enjoyed what you heard here, then follow us on our Instagram for even more great content all week long. Our handle is at Adorned Women. You can also visit our website at www.adornedwomen.com. And of course, join us again next week as we connect with another sister in Christ and learn so much from her life of faith. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.